Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy. Calling all crafters. Are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up now at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 242 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about folklore with my guest, Diana Baird and Jai. Diana is a senior curator and cultural heritage specialist at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. She previously held positions as folk arts program analyst at the New York State Council on the Arts and curator-in-chief at the Muse Community Museum of Brooklyn in New York. Dr. Njai is also a maker, creating quilts, necklaces, clothing, bags, and everything in between. As a maker, her focus is to provoke conversations and contemplations around identity, heritage, healing, and the social terrain in those of the diaspora. Utilizing her creativity as an anthropologist, Diana's travel and research permeate through her work. Her art is shaped by her identities as a citizen of global Africa and second-generation transnational. Diana Baird and Jai, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Abby. I um, I want to tell you how delighted I am to be on this podcast because I love, love, love your work. I love the work of the Craft Industry Alliance and um, follow it very closely. So, so That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a member. And I also love your work. So I'm very excited to talk to you. I am a big fan. So um, I would love to kind of go back. We're going to dive into all the work and projects. You have many projects that you're doing now, but I think it's helpful to sort of ground the conversation if we can a little bit in sort of your background. So I know you were born in New York, but as a baby, you moved to Bermuda. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Okay. Well, it, it's interesting because um, I have to start uh, actually before I was born. My my parents both moved from different parts of the Caribbean. Actually, my mom was from Guyana and uh, my dad was from Barbados. And they moved to this country, um, I believe, uh, at the end of around the end of World War Two uh, in 1945. And um, my granddad was actually a goldsmith. And um, in Guyana, um, in South America, he moved around from um, Guyana to what was then British Guyana to Suriname, uh, to French Guyana. And uh, he worked with uh, people who procured gold and he made um, uh, jewelry for people in the Afro-Guyanese community 
of Georgetown, which was the capital. And so um, uh, actually my mom grew up with him being a maker and being a craftsman. Yeah. And so that, so um, I guess uh, some, yeah, some might say I come by it, honestly, my love of, of craft. Um, my, um, I was born in New York city, but it was only five months old when I actually went to Bermuda. My mom uh, was helping my dad through school and um, my my great aunt, who's like my grandma, brought me up um, Bermuda, which was wonderful. I could not think of a better place to grow up around you know, the water and the great climate. And Bermuda then was like a little small island town. Um, interestingly enough, Bermuda at the time was very segregated. And I did not know that that was the case. I just thought that you know, black people lived in Bermuda and everybody else was a tourist or, you know, it was only after I got to be an adult and actually went back to do research there. I realized, oh my God, there was a whole other world there. But uh, we were around uh, nature and we were around plants and, you know, people were always using plants in the work that that uh, they did, whether it was decorating with flowers or culinary arts or whatever. So, um you know, it was a very big formative experience. Uh, when I came to the States, um, I was in the third grade. Okay. And, um, and I always, always loved to make things. Um, I, um, you know, I have a lot of fondness. I, after I came back to the States, I would go back to Bermuda uh, during the summer. So I'd go to like the Francis's Sewing School. That was uh, school where I really learned to sew, and my my uh, great aunts and and uh, my elders were always making stuff. You know, they'd sit by the window and they'd crochet and they'd sew. Gave me a pin and a needle to sew a pin to sew through fabric with. So that was another uh, thing. And um, I was. But you went to you went to a sewing school while you were there for in in the summer, right? And right. and what was that experience like? What did you make there? What did you learn there? Oh my god! Well, you know, basically it was the basics of sewing. You know, how to put a zipper in, how to put a hem on, how to make um, a basic. Um, I remember it was a top and a little skirt that I made, and it was pink cotton. And what I remember most about it, it was really hard to make. And so my, um, and, and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, you know, but my uh, elders helped me through it. And it was just a wonderful experience um, with that. Um, and then I continued to make stuff. I made my own playing cards one, one summer and another summer um, I you know put together leaves and, and, uh, made stuff out of leaves, but it was always something crafty. So I grew up with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, when you got ready to go to college, so, you know, you were in high school in the States, uh-huh. uh, what, what were you thinking about doing at that time? Or, I, you know, what were you like in high school during that period? Yeah. I was always an artist. I was always a maker. Um, one of the inspiring things is that I saw uh, in Bermuda during one of those summers, I saw um, a uh, cousin of mine who made her entire wardrobe. She sewed her entire wardrobe for college 
And I said, oh, I want to do that. So throughout high school, I sewed. I was a design, a fashion design major. We had um, a wonderful lady, Miss Perlock, who was our home act teacher, and she had worked on Seventh Avenue. So she talked us to say Bonnet Teller rather than Bonwit Teller, you know. And, and but she told us about you know the fashion industry, and and then uh, during the summer, I had the great great privilege of being part of a program called Hardwick Arts and Culture where I worked with Zelda Wynn Valdez, who's finally gotten her due as uh, one of America's premier couturiers. Um, and uh, she made clothing for, she made the first bunny outfit. She designed it and made it. For the, for the Playboy. The Playboy. Playboy yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Amazing. Uh, she also made clothing for everyone from Mae West to uh, Diane Carroll last night in the pips. So she was like the go-to person um, for many people in the entertainment business. And she had a salon on 57th Street, but in her first retirement, she worked with us, with the group of us, um, to really show us how to do couture sewing and to design. So um, our little class actually went up to the uh, World's Fair in Montreal and designed and modeled our own clothing, our own collections, which was just amazing. Amazing. Yeah. What an experience. You're a part of history, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I grow older, I realize how much, how much these things, you know, are. Yeah. But um, yeah. So when I went into college, I was really wanting to go to Pratt and I really wanted to go into design, but um, at the time, um, um, I actually got into NYU and their liberal arts college. And, um, and I got a, you know, at the time I got a scholarship, which was great. Um, and so, but I couldn't do art, you know? So I said, well, I am going to major in anthropology because then I can study and I can study the clothing of the world. And, and it's actually interesting because that's what I've done all my life. You know? Right, exactly. And I'm just, I'm always fascinated by people who know that they want to do something that's a little bit different in college. Like when I went to, I was a history major in college. And when I went to college, I didn't even really know what anthropology was, you know, much less deciding for that to be my major. Was there, you know, a class or a specific experience that you had that you were like, oh, I see how this works. This is for me. Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was I first was I said the closest that I thought was history of art. Sure. History of art was really European history of art. It had nothing to do mm. with, you know, anyone. It had one little chapter or one little class on what they call primitive art. And it was like denigrating it and so on. And I said, I don't want that, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I figured, well, anthropology and, you know, I mean, that's about culture. and Right. Okay. So um, that's how I ended up in anthropology and um, not realizing that, you know, there were a lot of other family ties and things to anthropology. My dad was a, a sociolinguist and, mm. you know, and, um, and the other thing is that my, my mom had a dry cleaning store. This is really important. During In high school, my mom had a dry cleaning store. And so I had to work at the dry cleaning store every weekend. 
and uh, during this, you know, during the year. And so because I had sewing skills, I was the repair lady. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would repair everything from zippers to hems. And I, it was it was something. And I would do like slight alterations. So that was also good. And she allowed me to put a little boutique in the front of the store. And so I would make my own creations and I'd put them in the front of the store. And I actually had the audacity to go to Macy's and say, look, you know, I have these wonderful clothes, you know, I want them in your boutique. And they said very kindly, well, you know, we have stores all over the country. So even our one of a kinds are like, you know, you have to have at least 25 of them. And I was, you know, I, there's no way I was going to do that. So, you know, that was a, a lesson in the industry. Um, and um, my parents, frankly, thought that the industry was going to be too um too hard for a lot of reasons and it was also you know during the 1960s and there was a lot of racism and so on in the industry as well so you know they they were concerned for me and wanted to get they said a a college education and better education so and then they said you could be a garbage person and my mom always said you know but you gotta get that degree so right um and um this is all, you know, uh, uh, part of this. But um, during my second year in college, I ended up getting an internship with the um, the education department at the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York. Wow! And that was wonderful because just the stimulation and the you know the inspiration and everything. Um, but again, it was, you know, mostly anthropology and um, got to meet some really wonderful people there um, and uh, ended up, that ended up, I think, changing the course of my work. I knew I didn't want to teach in a college, but mm-hmm. also I got introduced to museums and I was able to okay. teach craft classes with anthropology you know, in the museum. And so after I graduated, I ended up doing a lot of freelance work as an art, as a, as an art educator, basically, or as a teaching artist or whatever. And, um, but combining the anthropology with the actual practice. Right, right. And then you took a job at the Muse. And what was that? What is that museum? I've never been there. I don't know if it's still around or what, what is it like? Unfortunately, it's not around anymore. Oh, okay. Um, it was, let me see. Actually, I left something out. Um, oh, sure. Before I got to the Muse, um, I got hired um, at a college at the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Oh, okay. And the Brooklyn Children's Museum was a new museum, and I got ha- hired to um, as an anthropologist to go and do research, but then ended up as a museum educator when that project ended. And so um, I stayed there for about, for a few years. And um, then afterwards, yeah, I actually went back to school, got a master's, came back mm-hmm. and um, uh, got hired by the Muse, which was a community, an African-American community museum. And it was at a time when African-American artists were not being represented at all in major museums. Right, right. So there was a movement to start our own museums. 
And that's still, I mean, it's grown and a lot of wonderful museums have come out of that, um, uh, which are still, still around. The Muse, unfortunately, like some other museums, did not survive. Uh, but um, the um, they did a great publications. It was a great place to cut my teeth. I did um, exhibitions mostly on craft. I did one one I loved was um, called um, African American quilts um, quilt works, a continuing tradition, and we worked with um, artists who were making at the time contemporary quilts. One of which, one of the people who was in that show was, yeah, Faith Ringgold was in that show. Yeah. Just started out. Joyce Scott and her mom was in that, were in that show. Uh, we had quilts from the Georgia Sea Islands, which were the you know, African-American strip quilts. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Cummings, who's just won a National Heritage Award, was also in that. Um, so yeah, a lot of folks, and we had this great conversation with quilters and their and the next generation at the time. It's one. It's still one of the proudest things that I've. Yeah, ever that was really ahead of its time. Like, when was that around? Like, what that was, was that? Nineteen eighty-one. Wow, that was yeah. That's yeah. amazing. So it cool. Actually, yeah, it was actually before Faith Ringo started to do her story quilts. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy, and here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $1.49. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up, and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. For only $1.49, you'll get a full year of access to over 2,000 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 2,000 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy premium membership for just $1.49. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, back to my conversation with Diana. I also had quilts in the show because um, it was a small enough museum that, you know, as a maker, I I was also able to put a few quilts in. It's really funny because Faith Ringo was a great mentor to me at the time. 
but I was so shy and so unsure of myself. So this is something for for young people to remember, you know, that um, I was in a show, I remember it was called Home, and I ended up doing something that was really, just out of being nervous, did something that was really kind of derivative, and I really didn't like it that much, and and I was so embarrassed that I didn't get in touch with her again because I was like, oh, my God. But and now I think of it and I could kick myself. Um, luckily, I continued making stuff and continued, you know, doing making art alongside of um, the other kind of curatorial work. Uh, the second thing um, was something else that is followed me through life, which was a show that actually traveled, and it was called African-American Arts of Adornment. Mm-hmm. And we featured Joyce Scott's work again, and and we featured, um, yeah, some of Faith Ringgold's work. Um, we also had um, Corrine Simpson's work and uh, some of her photographs. I mean, a lot of people who are now very well known in the art world, um, Marilyn Nance's photographs. And it was really about the world, both uh, fine work made by makers who were jewelers and and who made wearable art. And I'm looking at it now. We had uh, Zenobia Bailey's work, uh, Marvin Sin, Jinga McCannon. <laughs> I mean, when I look at it, it again, a lot of folks who are still around and doing great work. And that traveled around New York State. And so from there, after I got hired by the New York State Council on the Arts, that was a different role. Yeah. What what was that like? I feel like that is a very different role than working at a private museum when you're working for the state in that way. Yeah. Well, the good part about it was that I was able to work with a lot of different organizations, both community organizations and museums and so on. And it was a grant-making, it was a grant-making organization. The folk arts program was just starting. Mm -hmm. So Robert Barron was the very first New York State folklorist. And, you know, we traveled throughout the state just meeting people and seeing organizations and helping them to formulate exhibitions in folklore and folk art. And I should mention what folklore and folk art are. I was just going to ask because I feel like that word folklore um, in some ways suffers from the same problems that the word craft suffers from. Um, and, And people shy away from using both words when they really shouldn't. But uh, I don't know if you if you, that resonates for you, but that's kind of how I feel about about both of those words. Oh yeah, very much so. First of all, uh, well, let me say what folk arts. Yeah, how I see folk arts. Um, it really is the expressive culture of communities. So you know when um, whether it be um, the baskets that are made, you know, in community and in Mount Pleasant in, you know, the Georgia Sea Islands or, um, you know, urban uh, graffiti art mm-hmm. or um, culinary arts. Um, the things that are made within a context of community. So they may be made in a little workshop where there's an apprentice, right? And this has been passed down from generation to generation or it can be 
um, uh, the kind of thing that you learned from your parents or from your aunties and uncles, mm-hmm. and, you know, but the main thing is that uh, it's learned within a community um, that gives meaning to that right. community, you know, so that's what it's, that's what folk arts are to, you know, and, and, and why do you, why do you think that that word though then gets sort of a, a negative connotation or sort of something that people sort of don't want to ascribe to the work that they're making? Okay. Cause there, there's a few reasons and, and, and it's interesting because particularly in the black community and the African-American community, um, what would happen is that you get people who were um, academically trained fine artists. Mm-hmm. Well, and I hate that fine folk distinction too, but they were actively academically trained painters or sculptors or so on. And because they were black, their work would be categorized as folk art mm-hmm. and folk art meaning um, self-trained or, you know, less than, mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, there were a lot of connotations there that had to do with being, oh, well, as my daughter sometimes she tried or he tried, you know, but, but not, you know, not excellence. And that's very far from the truth. And it's very far. And, but also people would get mischaracterized as folk artists, you know, um, who had uh, an African aesthetic, for mm-hmm. example. And it was it was like primitive art. And sometimes they'd say primitive and folk art. Again, these are terms that say, well, you're not quite up to the standard, but it's it's interesting art. And then the other part of that that is um that I also don't like is uh outsider art. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, art made by people who've learned outside of the academy, but it also had connotations of people who were on the fringes of society, like, you know, the the crazy neighbor who put stuff in the yard and, you know, and um, there's a there's more of an understanding of that. But there's still some of these terms that are really um denigrate the work that people do mm-hmm. and so i do understand why folk art gets caught in that yeah absolutely and so while you were working with this agency in new york with um going out into the community meeting with groups that were putting together exhibitions and things like this is that when you sort of first began to identify yourself as a folklorist or as somebody for you know for who for whom folk art is going to be a, a key piece of your career. Yeah, I would say, I would say that that's the case um, because, you know, I came to understand what it was and um, I actually, um, you know, I guess first owned myself as a, as a, well, for, as an anthropologist, but also as a folklorist. And mm-hmm. people always mix up that term because they think that folklorists are people who tell stories. Right. Well, folklorists collect narratives from from families and from individuals and so on. But it's not synonymous with being a storyteller, you know. And um, Zora Neale Hurston 
was trained as an anthropologist and and a folklore. She actually, her first essays were were in the American, uh, the Journal of the American Folklore, uh, which actually, you know, I've had the privilege of writing for now. And and but she was like in that gap. And and one one thing that was so interesting, she was recording the expressive culture, language, mm-hmm. uh, traditions of. Um, African-American communities. And she was also, you know, obviously also an amazing writer. And, and I think, again, someone who people learned about after, you know, she passed away and, and, and people are still now learning more about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is uh, like my patron saint. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you first connect with the Smithsonian? Because um, you've been there for a long time now, but my understanding is that initially your uh, sort of assignment there was meant to be very temporary. Yeah, actually, I was working at the New York State Council on the Arts, and um, I was also doing work with my husband um, in uh, with the Senegalese community. My husband was from Senegal. And uh, was trained um, in as a social worker and was a community activist and organizer. And so, um, I don't know, years ago, uh, when people from Senegal first started coming to the United States, many of them went to New York and many of them uh, were sending money back to their families in Senegal throughout a very bad drought. They, um, and uh, so they would do street vending. Mm-hmm. And uh, my husband at the time, you know, his day job was working at a bank. But then on weekends and evenings, he would go and he would do kind of literacy training, help them with papers, help them when the, you know, I remember when it was around the time of the AIDS crisis and he would talk to them about, you know, what that was all about. And he, so he'd do a lot of general Things, but also, um, we started, you know, looking at the culture of the folks who were coming over, and it was so interesting because they're basically taking a structure, structures and traditions from home, and recontextualizing them in these apartment buildings. And he came up with the name. Well, these are like vertical villages. And so, uh, you know, we actually wrote about that a little bit. And as an anthropologist, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Meaning like you'd have an apartment building. That's the vertical part. And then each of the different sort of functions of society would be housed within. Exactly. Exactly. It was amazing because you'd go to, you know, and they were um, single room only hotels. And, um, you know, once one person came over, then they'd bring their their families and replicating what was an immigrant experience for a lot of people. Right. So there was one woman who came over and for example, she set up a restaurant cooking home cooked food in her apartment. And so people would come up there and they would uh, pay a fee and she would give them box meals, but home cooked meals or they'd eat there and then she'd set up like a telephone where they could make long distance calls. And then she'd get videos from home with the news and she'd have it on a screen. You know, it was a time when there were videotapes. So it was like a 
that was the restaurant. And, right. And so there was another guy who was a barber and he set up because he knew the way that Senegalese men like their haircut. So then, you know, he would do that. So it was really like a vertical village. And um, so in the summer of, so I learned a lot about Senegalese culture, um, just being there. My husband was from a very traditional family as well, who was known as bearers of tradition. So um, uh, we heard, my boss heard that the Smithsonian was looking to do a program on Senegal and they were trying to find a curator to do it. And so um, he had recommended my name to the director here, Richard Curran. And uh, so, and I said, well, I can't do it without my husband being along because he's the person who, you know, has the connections and so on. And so we ended up both, um uh coming to the smithsonian we did uh several months of field work in senegal and lived there for for a little while and then came back and brought 75 um out of we we interviewed almost 300 people but we brought 75 um artists and um traditional artists back to the smithsonian for the smithsonian folklife festival and it was really wonderful it, you've ever been to the folklife festival you i know? have yeah we create it's almost like it's uh, an incredible experience yeah yeah it's almost like creating a community of practice of artists from different parts of the world right? on the national mall right oh. yeah yeah and oh. how long had the folklife festival been going i mean i grew up in dc and so i would go with my mom um and just remember it so well but i i don't really know the you know, backstory, like had that been happening for a long time prior to your oh, arrival? Yes. The, the first folk, the first uh, Smithsonian Folk Life Festival was in 1967. Okay. And then it was mostly music then, and, but it was also the, um, the, uh, the secretary at the time, um, Dylan Ripley uh, wanted to make sure, well, he said, you know, you know, we wanted to take the objects out of their cases and have them sing and have, you know, make a connection between the people who actually made the stuff and did the stuff and performed the stuff and the stuff that was in the museum. Right. So on the front lawn of the Smithsonian and um, during the uh, bicentennial in 1976, it was a tremendous festival. It was like, a, I wasn't there, um, but I, uh, just reading from, you know, looking at the tapes and looking at the things, it was uh, three weeks long or it was really, really long. I don't know how people could do that. Not even, it was more than three weeks long, but it was a continuous stream of of um, people coming from all over the world who had had roots in the United, who had had roots in other places, but were in the United States. So there were sections called Old Ways in the New World. And, um, you know, people who um, were keeping traditions alive from there, where they came. They had folks from Appalachia, folks from the South, folks, you know, all of these wonderful traditions. And so then actually it became a, an annual thing. And I knew about it when I was working at 
um, at New York State Council in the Arts. But I never got to go because it was right at the time we had our grant crush. And so I'd always be like filling out grant, you know, processing grant applications. So my first Folklife Festival was actually the one that I worked as a curator. Um, but it was something that just really was something I'd almost dreamed about and, and just fell right into what I wanted to do. And uh, so after the festival was over, Richard said, well, you want to stay? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I did not expect to stay for a really long time. But here, you know, 33 years later, um, I'm still here. Um, and, I'm, you know, I, we, I have a colleague who's um, retiring after 43 years at the Smithsonian. So Smithsonian, a lot of folks stay a long time. And, but, and um, you're a curator. And I, I wondered if you could explain that word gets thrown. That, speaking of words, that word gets thrown yeah. around a lot now, right? Yeah, it's yeah. always, you know, a curated collection of X, Y, and Z. I feel like it's just all people say that all the time. But in your understanding as curator, what does it actually mean? Okay. <laughs> it's funny because it became a buzzword a few right. years ago, and all of a sudden everybody was curating everything. But um, the the role of the curator uh, was originally um, someone who pulled together a collection of objects and who took care of them and who put them on exhibition in a certain way. In other words, pulled from um, um, conceptualized or was asked to conceptualize a collection or a theme for an exhibition and then put that together in a way that made sense. So it, it was almost like, um, in a way, it's a form of art and scholarship. So it's yeah. putting together the information or the objects and putting them together in a way that people can understand, that visitors can come and, and understand. And as a folklife curator, what we did was that we curate traditional expressive culture, like programs on expressive culture. So it's getting away from the object. Mm -hmm. And we basically curate a an event that allows people to come together and showcase their work, but also talk to talk to people and to showcase the traditions of a community. Mm -hmm. so like when I came to do the Senegal program, the kinds of things that I was thinking about was, okay, how can we best show how the traditions of Senegal permeate everyday life, both in Senegal and a little bit here when people come here, mm -hmm. you know, and how can we kind of convey that? And um, what are the traditions that people are practicing that, allow them to identify as a community. And, you know, it's like a conversation. Right. And um, on the other side of that conversation are tourists, visitors, people who yeah. just happen to be there that day, who travel, right. maybe travel from far away or maybe just nearby and stumbled upon this. And here they are and are interacting with in some way taking in 
what you've presented. And I, and that's a really interesting conversation and exposure sometimes for the very first time to something completely different and new to them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's in a way for the visitors, it's kind of a cultural education. It's, it's, you know, people have said that, wow, well, it's like, you know, being transported to another place and where you can meet people uh, without, you know, for the price of a Metro ticket, you know, right. And but also for the for the artists, um, they're often meeting people from other places because, you know, with the Folklife Festival, we often have people uh, from two completely different worlds, two completely different communities of practice who come together. So at the hotel, they're getting to meet people they never thought they would be meeting. You know, I remember... And finding out sometimes connections that they never thought that they would make. Um, and I mean, there's so many instances of that and, you know, folks having experiences where actually their minds were changed about, you know, about people because, um, wow, I didn't know that that person was so much like me and had the same kind of family experiences and, you know, and and we make different things, but we're all makers or we perform and we're all performers. And, you know, we all are excellent at our craft and want to pass it down to our kids or around. You know. So that's that's one of the things that I think that the festival hopefully does for the people who come. And and hopefully that it's in a respectful way, not like. The ninth, during the 19th century, there were these fears, world fears and things yeah. where people would be basically imported to a completely, you know. And on exhibit themselves. On exhibit themselves, yeah. Right. And um, at best, this is not that. This is not that. This is more um, of, um, I compare it to like, an artist residency, you know, mm-hmm. for cultural cultural residency, or but also for um, an opportunity to share. Um, and as I said, at its best, that's what it it is. Um, I think that um, it's especially where the language is different. It's it's not always a perfect kind of thing, but I think also what the work over the years, uh, my colleagues and I have done is moved towards community curation, participatory curation, where the community comes together and says, okay, this is what we want. This is how we want to represent ourselves. And- right. And so that, that idea of people telling their own stories, being right. able to tell the story of their own culture, of their own practices in their own words, I think right. is a really important part of this as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're new, the center now uh, where I work, we have several components. We have the Folklife Festival. Right. And that's an annual event. Tell people when it is and right. so that okay. they could go if they've never heard about it before. <laughs> Last week in June, first week in July. Okay, right. Um, this year is going to be really interesting because we're tackling the subject of religion in America. Wow. And, you know, one of the, the um, and there are a lot of conversations to be had about, you know, belonging at a table, who belongs at the table, but, you know, how to create 
a community that's a community of belonging, a larger community of practice, but also really learning about the traditions of other communities, how people, because people, most communities have traditions of worship, but they may be different, but the idea of worship and the idea of coming together in communion and community, those are things that people share throughout the world. And so how can we have those important conversations? And one part of those conversations is part that I, I was happy to have a part in that, which is um, conceptualizing makers of faith, mm-hmm. you know, so whether it be a um, uh, the clothing that's worn in liturgy, yeah, you know, the prayer shawls, mm-hmm. or whether it be the, the decorating an altar or creating the pews for you know a church or to, these are all things that makers do and many times as a form of worship right exactly absolutely that's so interesting and really does inspire a lot of of handwork and you think about illustrated bibles and there's just so much that no. you know is inspired no. by faith so, yeah the calligraphy you know right Torah and you know i mean it's, it's all sorts of absolutely things and so um that's going to be one thing and then the other one is a program on the ozarks and it's going to be um uh on the culture of the ozarks and it's so interesting you know if you think about one of the things that the festival tries to do is to eliminate stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of stereotypes about mountain people in America. Yes. You know, and um, um, this program hopefully will get folks to know some of the real people from the Ozarks and to understand the really rich, deep traditions both in music and in craft. And um, so it's going to be a fantastic exhibition. Absolutely. So I hope people will come to this year's um, Folk Life Festival. And I also wanted to make sure we we talk about um, a, a project that I think was sort of started or taken up during the pandemic um, that we got to be part of. And it's the African-American craft initiative. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. And yeah. so talk a little bit about that. And we were really honored to be invited to be part of it. And also just absolutely love to get the newsletter that's affiliated with that uh, initiative as well. And I highly recommend people sign up for it because there's lots of interesting things to read and know about that come through there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so funny because it was a kind of an accidental project, you know, spurred by the by the um, the pandemic. Um, we were starting to work on a program called the Crafts of African Fashion, which was looking at the makers behind this really big worldwide boom in African fashion. And then the pandemic hit, so we weren't able to do that, but as a maker again in a community in the community of practice that I belong to, which is you know makers and and was, uh, we've been talking a lot about how um, there were like five people that everybody knew in the, as African American craftspeople. Uh, so there were about five people that you know got all the awards and deservingly so, but you know we kept on saying but there's other people here 
and um like one of the um the artists um marvin sin for example he said you know we always get called when there's a conference or something at museums to be vendors but never as artists never recognize you know and and then i talked to other people um from the larger craft community who was saying you know we just don't know that there are you know that there are any artists so if you go to all sorts of craft shows including the smithsonian show and you know, you see like not anything near to the representation of the number of artists that there are and it coincided with the reckonings of you know that with the black lives matter movement and um so organizations um national organizations were saying well we've got to do better and we've you know uh we've got to change our board and we, but who who and where and you know so we put together a series of convenings the very first because we always talk about you know no folklore no folklore without the folk or you know nothing about us without us you know i mean these are the thing are the principles so the very first thing was that we put together convenings with African-American artists, craft artists, and art organizations. And we had a very wide um, um, umbrella. So we talked about heritage artists as well as artists who were contemporary, who were artists who worked within the craft medium but considered themselves interdisciplinary. And um, so uh, then we had one with craft organizations. and people, including myself, did not realize the breadth of African-American craft organizations that were that were around, and, and like some with 25,000 members, and you know, amazing, amazing. And then, so after that, we gathered the information from that, and then said, so we went to national craft organizations that were not necessarily African-American, said, look, you all said that there weren't any of us, but here we are, and you know, you can't... <laughs> So, you know, here's, you know, we know that we're out there. And so that, that has grown and has continued past the pandemic and has grown into a project where we're working in partnership, both with um, African-American individuals, organizations, as well as with national craft organizations. So um, to say what's coming up, uh, we just entered into a um a partnership with well first the American Craft Council we did some wonderful articles that were shared mm-hmm. uh our folk life magazine and the American Craft Council magazine we had a presence at their um at the craft show in Baltimore at which some of our artists came out and and um presented there we also have a project coming up with surf with the Craft Emergency Relief Fund, which is an incredible organization uh, that supports people in um, in crisis and so on. But also, um, they have had workshops on legacy planning, and so we said, "Oh wow, well, it'd be great to have legacy planning, um, but w- with an orientation towards also uh, African American elder artists working with younger artists, but." Um, pulled together by museums, having local museums around the country work with um, uh, 
trainers who can help folks to get their stuff recorded, to get their stuff archived, to get online, you know. And um, that's just starting. And uh, we're working with Smithsonian Affiliations, which is um, a, um, a part of the Smithsonian that has affiliate museums around the country. And um, that's just getting started. And then the other one is with Folk Education and the Folk School um, Alliance. And there we are really anxious to work with teaching artists to see how, you know, what impact and what kinds of things we can do to augment uh, the number of um, folks within the teaching artist community nationwide um, at schools that have previously not had that and and maybe even to start the idea of a um an african-american oriented craft school so these are all the kinds of things that we're we're looking at that's amazing and i i want to make sure before we wrap up um you've done so many interesting projects um in your work and um but but i wanted to touch on um i think it's called the will to adorn um is just such an incredible um, project and um, and inspired by, uh, I think, a Zora Neale Hurston quote as well. So if you can talk a little bit about that and, and its goals and, and what it was. Sure. Well, uh, the Wilter Dorn uh, started out with the idea of doing research into the African-American aesthetics of dress. And the question is, what makes dress African-American? You know, because folks may be wearing uh dress that's European dress and so on, but it'll be the style will be there'll be something different. And the more we got into it, we realized first of all, there's a lot of diversity. And there are many communities of style that um reflect thoughts about the world, thoughts about um community, thoughts about freedom, thoughts about um uh resistance against oppression. And um uh, this has been something continuous throughout African-American history and continuing into the present. And uh, we realized that like no, you know, like every other community, the African-American community is not one monolithic community. So the more we got into it, the more we realized, wow, well, this is looking at African-American diversity through the lens of of clothes and through people's own voices, because we also wanted to make sure that people talking about what they wore was central. And um, we had a Folklife Festival program where we had artisans of style who were makers who were making for communities. And we also, so I've been working on a book for a really long time that will be published by um, University of Mississippi Press. Um, Hopefully it'll be coming around this time next year. Uh, But it's all on, um, it's called The Will to Adorn um, African-American style and the aesthetics of identity. And uh, so that's that's amazing. We can't wait to get it. I think that's just an incredible topic and one I'm really eager to read about. So yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, Diana, this has been, I mean, we could talk all day. There's so much to talk about, but I I just wanted to say thank you for all of the work that you are doing and have done. Um, And I'm so glad to be connected with you and to continue to learn from you. Oh, same here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Abby. And and, uh, again, I really appreciate the 
work that you've been doing and that you continue to do to, you know, as, as a maker, especially to, um, but also as a, as a folklorist to um, really help us to uh, become not only better makers, but become better business people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Diana. I really appreciate it. Thanks. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Craftsy, calling all crafters. Are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up now at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.